Ilyasa. Yeah. Here we go. I mean, to be or not to be, that is the question. Yes, it is. Whether it is nobler in the mind, in the mind, to suffer the slings and arrows oh, of outrageous, outrageous fortune, fortune, or to take fortune. arms against the sea of troubles and, and by opposing end them to die. To Why are you surprised when you fall for love? <laughs> but you're the one who came up with this title. Why? And what made us decide that we would go with it? Live from the campus of SUNY New Paltz, To Be or Not To Be, a distinguished speaker series lecture with Ilyasa Shabazz. First, the news. Today on the Janice Adams Show, live from SUNY New Paltz. For this year's Distinguished Speaker Series Lecture, I have the privilege of sharing an intergenerational fireside chat with fellow alum Ilyasa Shabazz, author, educator, daughter of Malcolm X and Dr. Betty Shabazz. Here's New Paltz President, Dr. Donald P. Christian. Good evening and welcome to the SUNY New Pulse Distinguished Speaker Series. Glad you're all here, what a great turnout. Tonight's speakers, Janice Adams and Ilyasa Shabazz, are both accomplished SUNY New Pulse alumni uh, who've returned to campus for, as you've heard, our first time ever fireside chat uh, format. And their conversation this evening is titled, To Be or Not To Be. It's subtitled, An Intergenerational Conversation Between Two SUNY New Pulse Alumni on Purpose, personal and social responsibility. What does it mean to be oneself in times of challenge and change? We're looking forward to it. I also want to acknowledge New York State Senator Robert Jackson over here. <laughs> senator Jackson is a New Paltz alum uh, returning here uh, this evening and the senator represents parts of Manhattan. He's a 1975 graduate of SUNY New Paltz. So now to introduce our speakers. Uh, first Janice Adams, a 1967 alum and a 2018 honorary doctorate uh, alum. We're pleased to welcome Janice Adams back to the Distinguished Speaker Series. Uh, she received a standing ovation in her 2017 appearance where she gave a talk titled, Know When to Leave the Plantation. Janice delivered an encore presentation for additional uh, SUNY New Paltz students and invited guests in 2018. Janice is an, uh, an Emmy Award-winning journalist, historian, and publisher. Uh, she's also the producer and host of The Janice Adams Show, which is available as a podcast. Janice is the author of 11 books and has, has appeared frequently on ABC, CBS, uh, CNN, Fox News, NBC, and NPR. How do you do all that? Ilyasa Shabazz is a 1985 alumna. Uh, she's an inspirational role model and advocate for empowering youth and women and girls. Uh, her life's work is devoted to helping others find inner strength and purpose. While she's frequently asked to speak about the legacy of her father, Malcolm X, 
Uh, she shares that it's her mother, Dr. Betty Shabazz's wisdom, courage, and compassion that guide her. Ilyasa is the author of four award-winning publications, including the very moving memoir, Growing Up X. She and Kekla Magoon were awarded an NAACP uh, Image Award in 2016 for their book, X, a novel, uh, which was recognized as best outstanding literary work for youth and teens. Uh, she served as a member of the U.S. delegation that accompanied President Bill Clinton to South Africa to commemorate the election of President Nelson Mandela. Before I turn the podium over to them, I, I want to go off script a little bit and um, comment briefly about a project that we undertook here at, at SUNY New Paltz uh, the previous two years to evaluate and come to grips with a decision to remove and replace the names on several campus buildings that had uh, distinct uh, ties to early slavery uh, here in New Paltz. Um, not very often does a college campus like ours undertake a project like that and have it written up in the New York Times. This is an article, a SUNY school to strip slave owner names from dorms. Uh, both Janice and Ilyasa have inspired me in different ways, both about undertaking that project and about uh, thinking uh, about its meaning in a broader societal context. And so we want to present each of them for that inspiration with a framed copy of the reprint of that uh, New York Times article. Thank you for your inspiration. So with that, please join me again in welcoming Janice Adams and Ilyasa Shabazz. Good evening. Thank you for your welcome. Yes. Good evening, oh. good evening, our fellow New Paltzians. Yeah. <laughs> I was supposed to say, go Hawks. <laughs> you oh. know, I just want to say, I think this is where I had my organic chemistry class. <laughs> and all I remember is all of the equations that she would have. Our, my professor was a woman. And every time she would lecture to us, she would always look up. You know, and she never really looked at us, and I just thought that was really interesting. So this place has such memories for me. I just have to say that. I love that. My memory of this building is that it didn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> Ilyasa. Yeah. Here we go. I mean, to be or not to be, that is the question. Yes, it is. Whether it is nobler in the mind, in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous, outrageous fortune, fortune or to or take arms against the sea of troubles and, and by, by opposing, opposing end them to die to sleep. Why are you surprised when New Paul's alone? But you're the one who came up with this title. Why? And what made us, neither one of us really drinks, so what made us decide that we would go with it? <laughs> well, I would love to say that I don't drink, and I really don't. But, you know, when I was in high school, um, I had a professor that really left such an impact on me. 
And one of the things that we had to memorize, one of the soliloquies was Hamlet. And I really didn't understand why at the time, but as my journey began, I realized how much of an impact that soliloquy had because what it basically says is to be or not to be, whether it is noble in the mind to suffer slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against the sea of troubles and by opposing end them. So we are either going to be a part of the problem, right? Or we're gonna be a part of the solution. I choose to be a part of the solution. And I know all of our fellow New Paltzians, right? Will be a part of that solution. I also found in one of my father's um, lectures at Oxford University that he too um, really liked this particular excerpt of Hamlet. But then it goes on, but that the dread of something after death. So after you say you give it up, let's say you say you give in to it. Um, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than to fly to those we know not of. You know? And so injustice goes across the board. Yes. It goes across the board. Yes. And it's up to us to not see injustice as a black and white issue, but to see it as an issue of right and wrong, to have the capacity to recognize the difference between right and wrong, and to, to have compassion for that. And courage. Yes, absolutely. You know, it is how easy it is. We all know how easy it is, um, I think, to go along, to get along. And then after you've gone along to get along, and you keep going along to get along, and before you know it, what? A life is up. That's it. It's, it's over. It, right. It's over. So as a student here, um, first of all, what made you decide to come to Newport? Actually, my mother brought me. My mother brought me, and I was like, okay, I like it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and I write about it in my book, Growing Up X. I actually wanted to go to, to the South. And I had you know, spent my summers in Vermont. I had gone to an all-girls prep school, and then I went to, I graduated from Hackley, and, and most of the schools where I attended, my mother sent me for a quality education, but there weren't a lot of people of color. And so all I wanted to do was go to school with people of color. And so she brought me up here, and I said, oh, wow, look at all these people of color. Okay, I'll stay, you know? And, um, but I have to say, when I first came, and I don't know if this was the room, but um, my, I was dropped off at Chris Bell, one of the dorms that changed its name, and the, the students in Dubois came and they got me and they brought me to Dubois, and I thought it was for W.E.B. Dubois, but I found out that it wasn't. <laughs> I mean, I just found out today that that wasn't about W.E.B. Dubois. <laughs> And so then they decided that I was going to be the chairperson of the Black Student Union. And I really didn't know, no, you wouldn't be snapping, I'm telling you. Because I didn't understand at the time the, 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 the challenges you know, that had existed because I had come from a place, my mother guarded her children because she saw her husband 
you know, gunned down in front of her. Her home had been firebombed. She saw her husband, Malcolm X. And so my mother made such an effort to ensure that her six daughters were raised understanding the importance of self-love, understanding the importance of love. You know, I thought about love, peace, joy. And when I came to college, they wanted me to be this fiery person that I wasn't. And so it was such a challenge for me. But I am happy that New Pulse was the place that I attended and, you know, learned all the things that I learned, including organic chemistry. (laughs) (laughs) From a teacher who'd only look up. But now this young lady right here, she attended school here in 1963. Um, I did. I, I, um, I, you know, I, I, 63 was a pivotal year. And when you, when you talk about, you know, your coming and what your expectations were, you know, it's interesting as a historian, I, I'm very familiar with my frustration that even now, when you look in the history books, American history books, as if as they're, it's frequently taught, that the only time that black people are pretty much mentioned is that we were responsible for the war that created the greatest number of Americans, killed the greatest number of Americans, and supposedly that was our fault. And then the next time that we're there is for the turmoil of the 60s. It's interesting that perspective still is implanted. Well, 63 when I came, was the height of the turmoil being um, the March on Washington, which was just weeks before I arrived at school. And within weeks after that was the Kennedy assassination. Um, I was on this campus when the word came that your father had been killed. Um, And I think I'm going to put it in, in a different kind of context. I cannot express how important it is to me that this renaming has taken place. I cannot thank Dr. Christian enough for his courage and tenacity in making it happen. The people who supported him and even the people who opposed him so that he knew he had to push even harder. You know? Um, Because when I was here as a student, it was not, it was pleasant to be with our friends, but there was, as I mentioned in the Know When to Leave the Plantation speech, there were more African students than there were African American. That was a good thing because the campus had a commitment to bringing people from all over the world. So even at that time with the quarter system, we had a, our social study sequence was a quarter of European civilization, a quarter of African civilization, and a a quarter of Asian civilization. Now, in truth, it was very colonized history of Africa and Asia. But progressive, in that context, it was acknowledged that they were civilization. And we had to really latch on to taking pride in whatever we could take pride in. But I will say that at the same point, the education, and and I'm not proud of this, I'm proud to have outgrown it, was such that I remember writing a piece for which I got a failing grade for a piece in which I had been 
creative about the Four Seasons, not Vivaldi's, playing off of um, the, the Baroque composer. The, the professor did not like the fact that I did that. But I got an A for writing a piece that analogized the Ku Klux Klan with the, with the, with the Nation of Islam. Wait, wait, repeat that? I, I need to hear that again. Yeah, you heard it. <laughs> that the A was given for the false equivalency of analogizing the Nation of Islam with the Ku Klux Klan. Okay? That was the atmosphere. And that was the climate of the country, just as Dr. Christian said, it was a period of time. You know, I mean, even now you hear people say, what's slavery in the North? What are you talking about slavery in the North? We still have that level of denial. We are still struggling to really put the correct information out in the correct context. Um, but so it has been quite a journey from being here in 1963, I think, as I said, uh, at the last week, they said, wow, it's only taken me 50 years to get from that side of the hall to this side of the lecture. <laughs> but, um, but a lot, thank goodness, has also happened in that 50 years. Today from the Janice Adams Show, live from SUNY New Paltz, a distinguished speaker fireside chat with Ilyasa Shabazz. More after the break. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with a special broadcast live from SUNY New Paltz, a distinguished speaker series fireside chat with my fellow alum, Ilyasa Shabazz, author, educator, daughter of Malcolm X, and Dr. Betty Shabazz. I found it really fascinating when you said, when you attended school here, that the, the guys would be able to go out, but the girls had, to, had a curfew. <laughs> I thought are that was students, quite How many students are in the room now? Do you know what I'm talking about when I refer to hours? Yeah. <laughs> hours meant that girls had curfew. We had to be in by a certain hour. The boys had no curfew. The girls were punished for violating curfew. The boys got to hang out all night and do as they please. <laughs> and that was... Dr. Christian said the legacy of in loco parentis, and I said, but it was just loco parents. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, but yes, we, we had that. Um, what is the strangest thing that was happening when you were a student that has changed now? When I attended, I, I remember I had a really good girlfriend who had, a, you know, in my school. And I was coming here to go to college, and she was going to come and visit me, and she was white. Mm -hmm. And I remember getting on the payphone <laughs> <laughs> and calling her and telling her that she couldn't come and visit because it was different here. And so here I discovered, you know, all of the injustices and what it meant. I discovered my father, Malcolm X. Um, I was 
15. I had just turned 16 in July, so I was pretty young. And I hadn't read the autobiography of Malcolm X from a very mature place. And so I, you know, this is where I discovered my father. And um, it was an emotional time for me just trying to live up to others' expectations of me. I had never experienced, you know, being out of my mother's protective wing and, you know. Uh, so what I discovered up here is that the Ku Klux Klan lived here, right? And I remember at that time of my life, I was very courageous. And I remember there was one of the students who was missing, and it turned out that he was, you know, he was really, he wasn't missing, but we all thought he was missing. And our imaginations had gotten the best of us. And so we were very much a close-knit group. And um, we went out searching for him, expecting to find the worst. Um, but it turned out that he was okay. One of the things I experienced, you know, I go on and I lecture. And so one of the things I experienced is I had gone and I lectured at a university. When I went back to that university 15 years later, it wasn't as, they, the young people were not as active. And so one of the things that I think is extremely important to always tell young people, especially on college campuses, is whatever challenges you've experienced in your freshman years, if you were um, unsure of yourselves, if you were discovering more about yourselves, whatever it is you experience, that it is so important when you get to be a junior, that you reach back to those freshmen and you have some sort of camaraderie, that you are responsible for your brothers and your sisters, that you are your brother and your sister's keeper. So I think it's absolutely so important because sometimes we just take for granted. We may have people like Dr. Janice Adams, you may have me, you may have your president, your professors who care for you, but if you fast forward 10 years from now, all of the mentoring that you've received, if you're not giving it back or showing the next generation of students who are coming in that they are responsible for reaching back and so forth, that to me was something that I discovered being here in New Paltz. Mm -hmm. you know? But I think it's always so important to put your arm around two generations behind you and not take all of this for granted, and not be the, the takers, but take and also give. Some of that lack of um, activism that we perceive actually came because of the period of time, but I don't think it really, I don't people are, think people are feeling very complacent. In this, no, not at no, this not time. this generation. This is, not, this is it. Not, you guys are it. You, no. Yeah, you are the generation. Yeah. <laughs> That's one thing Mr. Trump has done for us. <laughs> um, and, and to show the need yeah, of, of the activism. Um, we've referred to your family, and, and we know the sad part, the tragic part. What is your happiest memory of your family, since you mentioning that you have a large family, which you do? I am in total envy as an only child. We had a great, you know, I had a great family, great childhood. Um, you always had your friends. You know, we had this woman who would come and watch us when my mother was away. And 
we would say our names forward and backwards to make it appear as if we were speaking different languages. You know, I think that, you know, that um, we had help doing homework. You know, it was all the really great things. And then also, I, again, when you are a large family of six girls, and we were all very close in age, you just kind of have, you know, a very good approach uh, to life. My father had a good sense of humor. My mother had a good sense of humor. And I think, you know, even looking at Malcolm, my father was only in his 20s, right, when, he, when the world learned about him. He was only in his 20s. And while young people were demonstrating, marching, protesting for a quality life, for a quality education, health care, Malcolm came along and said, we demand respect as your brother ordained by God. We demand our human rights. And so even my father coming from a large family and being so serious, right, had a great sense of humor. I just remember that he had a great smile. Yeah, beautiful person. Yeah. You know, people see the wrong side. We've been so misinformed about people of African ancestry, about indigenous people, and it makes such a difference when we are properly educated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Makes such a difference. You know, when Dr. Christian called and asked if I'd be interested in doing this and doing this format, the conversation, um, I was really just so stunned. And I said, I don't think you know what you've just really done. And because Iliasa and I have just met tonight. Now, we've been speaking back and forth on the phone, and we've curtailed several conversations saying, oh, no, we, we, we can't talk too much about that now because we, we don't want to act as though we've already had the conversation when we're up here. We are really just meeting each other, <laughs> other than some public things, but to actually say, Iliasa, Janos, this is the first time. However, I actually knew her mother pretty well. Her, when she talks about her mother being away, I mean, her mother did many things, but I remember her mother, I was living in Amherst, at Amherst, Massachusetts, and her mother was taking her doctorate there. And because my husband, there is a significant age difference between my husband and me, but he was actually a very good friend of Malcolm. Can we tell who your husband was? Huh? Can we tell them? Yeah. So are you, do you guys know who Max Roach is? That's her husband. <laughs> and our daughters are here someplace, yes. But, but um, they were very good friends. In fact, there's a, a chair that is at my daughter Jarrah's house right now that I remember when I first um, went to my then not husband's apartment. And he was, and I was fascinated with this chair because of the carving and everything else. And he said, well, this is the chair in which Dizzy Gillespie fell asleep. This is wow. the chair in which um, Charlie Parker used to um, pretend to be asleep so my mother would say something. And then this is the chair that Malcolm used to sit in at the dining room table, and we would have these phenomenal conversations that would go on all night long. So, um, you know, it was just, hi. And, and then, as well, um, 
my grandfather was a Garveyite. Anybody know the name Marcus Garvey? Back, back to African nationalists. And my grandfather is, so I am also here as the immigrant's child. I would like to make that very clear, especially in this time. Um, and my grandfather had come from um, a Dutch colonized West Indies, uh, um, St. Eustatius. And he was very much an, an activist as a Garveyite. And in his later years, every time I saw my grandfather, he had two newspapers, the New York Times and Muhammad Speaks, which was started by her father. And, but they, he actually, they, I would not say that my grandfather and Malcolm were friends, but they did know each other because that park in Harlem that used to be called Mount Mars Park, right below 125th Street and 5th Avenue, um, is now renamed Marcus Garvey Park. And that is where the activist black man of Harlem would gather. And my grandfather was considered a soapbox philosopher. And what he was propounding were the teachings of Marcus Garvey and the Nation of Islam. And then I realized that her grandfather was a Garveyite as well. My grandfather actually was the president of the uh, Midwestern chapter. And my grandmother, these are Malcolm's parents, because you know the reason that I wrote my books is not for Malcolm or Betty to shine, is, but for that, so that future generations could benefit from their work, their work that had been misappropriated. And so Malcolm's father was the president of the Milwaukee chapter. And he's also responsible for getting Marcus Garvey out of jail for, ele uh, for alleged uh, mail fraud. Um, and then his mother was the national- Trumped up yes. charges of yeah. mail fraud. Trump uh, yeah. <laughs> That too. Yeah. <laughs> and his mother was the national recording secretary. So I always say, when you have two young activists, you make sure that your children are well-equipped to navigate through societal injustices, challenges, and, and so forth. And so that was Malcolm's parent. My grandmother would say, in this world, all things are one. And then my grandfather, her husband, would say, in this world, let no one contaminate your mind. And that is the kind of um, training, I think, that is... Uh, it's not even just metaphoric. Uh, I am, my cousin and I and two others are the four children who desegregated New York City's public schools. At, I was eight at the time. The significance and why I mention it in this context is because we're talking about legacies and, you know, what's a metaphor, but in a very real sense. The fact that my grandmother and grandfather were immigrants plays a major part in it because December 5th, 1955, Rosa Parks is going to court to answer the charges that she sat when she should have gotten up and moved to another seat for a white man who had many other seats in this bus, empty, that he could have sat in. This is the South where they love to talk about chivalry. Why did this man want the seat of a black woman? 
Why did he need this seat when there were so many others? Says something about the atmosphere of intimidation. But December 1955, as she's going to court to answer for her arrest in Montgomery, my grandmother, at the exact same hour, is in federal court in New York City, pledging allegiance to a flag, promising them freedoms neither will get. The exact same hour, yeah. nine o'clock. So, and I, none of us knew this at, at that time. It's with research that you come upon these things. It wasn't until well after my grandmother's death when I happened to find her passport and her, her um, citizenship papers. And I looked at the date and I said, but the date, the time, the date, the time, and realized, oh my goodness, it's the exact same hour. So mm. at that point, because she had become a citizen that day, when my family was approached as to whether or not my cousin and me would, and I would be allowed to participate in this school desegregation process, they said yes, because they considered that they were giving their children to the country that said it was welcoming my grandparents. That's what that was about. So, um, you know, I mean, when you're talking about Garveyite people, when you're talking symbolic of immigrants, I, when I studied, I, I had done a junior high school unit for Scholastic about your, your dad. Um, and one of the things that really struck me as I was reading about him at that point was just this little boy who was so in love with learning. He wanted to be a lawyer, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and just your grandfather and almost this innocence that your grandparents had in terms of their belief that in writing a letter to the president, that the president would stand up for them. And he actually did. And yeah. so my grandfather wrote a letter to then President Coolidge. And when you read this letter, it's, it's floating on the internet. When you read this letter, it sounds much like Malcolm. And he tells President Coolidge that they uh, falsely, or they've made a mistake in arresting. Yeah. So you saw the letter? Yes. Yeah. So they made this mistake in arresting. That's uh, why I'm saying it sounded so yes. innocent. Yeah. Innocent because? Because of the absolute uncontaminated belief yeah. that the country would do the right thing where right. black people were concerned. Right, right. And it wasn't just where black people were concerned, but it was where a human being is concerned yes. for being falsely arrested. And so it is really important that we learn not to see things from a black and white perspective, but having the capacity to recognize right from wrong and doing something when we see wrong. Today on the Janice Adams Show, live from SUNY New Paltz, a distinguished speaker fireside chat with Ilyasa Shabazz. More after the break. Trying to make it real compared to what? Trying to make it real compared to what? 
We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with a special broadcast live from SUNY New Paltz, a distinguished speaker series fireside chat with my fellow alum, Ilyasa Shabazz, author, educator, daughter of Malcolm X, and Dr. Betty Shabazz. You've, you've said a couple of times this issue that it's important that we not just see black and white and this contrast. And I think one of the biggest lessons greatest lessons that I've had in that vein was I produced a, a series of children's books called the Backpack, B-A-C-K-P-A-X series. And one of the titles that we did was done in Cajun country. And the reason that I, as a black person, went to from Connecticut, where we were living, to Cajun country, Louisiana, is because I was fascinated that at that point, they were still referring to Cajuns as white niggers. And at that point, it was right when Cajun food was coming in. But this issue of maligning these people and why were the Cajuns maligned? Why in some quarters are they still maligned? Because these were the immigrants who had gone to Canada and um, I cannot ignore what that means in terms of indigenous people. But for the purpose of this conversation, these were the people who'd gone to Canada as French immigrants, been expelled by the British, ended up having to wind their way down, many on foot, to the next French colony, which would have been Louisiana. That's how they got there. And then they became this despised lowest of the low because they are immigrants and that moniker of white niggers stuck. And I learned from that and from being with the people. What I learned is that, and I think it's the takeaway that I want to, for the moment, and uh, end this part on. In that moment, I realized racism had nothing to do with anyone as individuals. It had to do with power. It had to do with ill-gotten gain of advantage. And it had to do with who you could put down in the name of lifting yourself up. But it had nothing to do with the people it was being imposed on. And who you could put down so that you could build yourself up. So it makes you feel good, yes. makes you feel like you're a big man yes. when you impose this false sense and of so these people inferiority who, on others yes, gives you this false sense exactly. of superiority. And that was the excuse mm -hmm. for maligning these people. Yes. I think we are approaching a time to do Q&A. Okay. Uh, you mentioned, uh, Ilyasa, about right and wrong and being able to know the difference between right and wrong. And there are passionate, uh, intelligent, uh, convicted people who have ideas that are so opposite of what I consider right and wrong, who consider themselves right and me wrong, how do you right-size that and sort that through? Because you want to try to, I think a lot of it is pressed upon us 
And I think a lot of us are divided purposefully. Uh, and so right or wrong, I like to stay open to why someone else thinks right and wrong is opposite of what I think right and wrong. But keep my heart open to what do what are they thinking? And so what are they thinking? Or how do you write that with your statement that said? Uh, so what I do with my students, I think it's extremely important to understand history, right? And one of the courses that I teach right now is perspectives on justice in the Africana world. And so what they get to do is they get to research. Why is, why are, why is there injustice in all of the Africana world? What are they seeking? Who are they fighting to get their justice from, right? So we get to revisit our education, right? We get to visit history in the truest sense. So we get to learn about the different uh, empires prior to slavery, because we all learned about slavery, right? But we didn't learn the truths about slavery. We're discovering today. My father said, if you put a knife in my back nine inches and you take it out six inches, the knife is still in my back. So it's absolutely important that in order to address the wound, we have to have a discussion about it, right? So it is absolutely so important that we go back and we re-educate ourselves. We have been miseducated, especially when it comes to the African diaspora, when it comes to people, uh, indigenous people. And so when you learn history in its real, true form, that's a start. You know, so we have to be realistic and make sure that we take responsibility for teaching our children the truth about history. The beauty of America is that we get to experience the diversity of the world's nations, the different nationalities. I just want to... Yes, okay. absolutely. I just um, have two quick things that I want to say about that. One is I mentioned the school desegregation process. As an eight-year-old, I'm walking into school, and you have these grown-ups screaming and hollering, tearing at my clothes and spitting at me. Mm. I don't want to hear about your politics. I just want to ask, who are you? You know, what kind of person thinks it's okay to do that to a child? So to me, some of this is on that very basic level. You know, the next thing that is important to me on, on this subject is that in this country, there is a great intertwining of religion and bigotry. We have to be honest about that. And we use the religion as an entitlement to say it's not us. God told us to do this. Okay? I don't know one religion in the world that does not have at its basis do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So when, so when I hear, to be honest, to me, the false equivalency of turning around what is right and what is wrong and making what is wrong right, and you know, I mean, 
in, in the era of slavery, what was right was wrong, what was wrong was right. I mean, when you have to go through that kind of confusion, that to me is, the, is really do unto others as you would have them do unto you, not in a Pollyannish way, but in a very pragmatic way. There was another question up there. I know they have Hello. a microphone. Thank you. Can you hear me? Okay. <laughs> Uh, my first question is, do you think that it's possible to have another Malcolm X or another Marcus Garvey, another Martin Luther King in this day and age now? That's my first question. My second question is, you mentioned... I would say yes. Yes. <laughs> absolutely. My, my second question is, um, you mentioned that racism is about putting, how to put someone else down to make your, to lift yourself up, but how do you... Um, for a lack of a better term, combat that, or do you combat that? Like, how do you handle that amongst yourself to deal with that on a daily basis? Because it's, it's there regardless, so. Um, I just think that at a certain point, those of us who know better have to do better. And therefore, I just, at this age, I cannot put a lot of time into people who don't know right from wrong and think they are exempt. Um, but at the, yeah, I mean, you know, come on. Right. <laughs> um, wherever they are, you know? And so I think to me it's about, you mentioned, you know, the networks and, and the mentoring that you get here. I think it is about using this time and space, whether you're faculty, students, wherever we are, using our humanity and the fact that we are together in a positive, safe space, use it well. And build your craft of how you treat other people well, how you bring about the best in yourself, how you, how you use yourself to lift that other person, how you create your posse. I think that is the best use of, of time, other than concentrating on someone who's hell-bent on not getting it. Do you have the mic? Yes. Um, my question is, I also went, I went to a predominantly white boarding school, and a lot of the underclassmen are still reaching out to me and letting me know that there's, like, I don't know, racial injustice on campus and white privilege that's going unaddressed. So what I'm asking is basically, what would you recommend that I tell them about the importance of continuing to advocate and be advocates because people understand, like you said, it's very possible to have more Martin Luther Kings or Malcolm X's, but nobody wants to do the work. Or in like being a black woman, we often get titled like angry or... Um, Can't focus on that. Yeah. Because the thing is, is that even during the time of Malcolm X and during the time of Harriet Tubman, Harriet Tubman said, if I could have convinced I don't like the word slaves, enslaved. But she said, if I could have convinced more slaves that they were slaves, I could have freed thousands more. So no matter what, you're always going to have challenges. You just have to be steadfast focused. Now the black students saying there's white privilege. So the, her school that she attended, she's just maybe okay. three blacks in her school. How far away it's what school is school. it? It's in it's in Virginia on the Rappahannock River. It's very conservative. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
I was thinking also that if they were more local, that you could have invited them to spend time with you at, on campus. I cannot say that in that environment that you are going to tell, that people are going to be convinced that it's okay to back off their privilege, because that's what it really is. Why should I have to give up? Yeah, I know I'm privileged, but why should I have to give it up for you? That's what the real issue is, and that I'm not going to. Power never concedes without the demand. It never has and it never will. Douglas. Okay. So, you know. Thank you so much. We're talking about young people, and I just wanted to read something from my book, um, Sister Days, that I, I hope will wrap this up, and then we will end with singing, I promise. <laughs> Sometime in 1621, we cannot be sure exactly when, a woman known only as Isabella gave birth to the first African child born in the Americas. Her husband's name was Anthony, and their baby was later baptized William in the Church of England, at the Jamestown Colony in Virginia. That is all we know, and yet we know more. Recently ripped from their former lives, what horror William's parents must have seen. But in his eyes, they could see hope and promise, and for that they must have lived and dreamed their better days. On this day, this author's daughters, Ayodele Naila and Dara Rashida, November 2nd, were born in New York City. It's their birthday this Their father, Max Roach, had come to Brooklyn as a child, his parents fleeing the Depression and the Jim Crow South. His parents had been born in a section of the historic Great Dismal Swamp of North Carolina. Their parents were among the post-war emancipated who symbolically claimed it and renamed it New Land. In this promise was their future, their all. My father, Burkell Adams, had come to the States from St. Kitts as a child, his mother having seen both of her twins die. My mother, Muriel Tewitt, was American-born to two immigrants, William Landsmark and Myra Carlisle, a twin herself. It is for my daughters and yours that these and many other books have been written. Like Isabella, in spite of all that has happened to us as a people, in our children's eyes, we see hope. How can we say to our children, to your children, and to mine any less than thank you, Sarah? Thank you, Aya. Happy birthday. Happy birthday to all our young people. Happy. Are we going to sing? We can sing happy birthday to all of us in this room. Happy birthday. Or we can sing the Stevie Wonder Happy Birthday. Yeah. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. And that's all I know is the chorus. Janice and Iliasa, thank you so much for a, a wonderful presentation and conversation.
Today on the Janice Adams Show, live from SUNY New Pulse, a distinguished speaker series fireside chat with Ilyasa Shabazz. My thanks to her and to you for joining us today. And special thanks to SUNY New Pulse for permission to broadcast this program. For more about today's show, visit my website, janosadams.com. From the studios of WJFF Radio Catskill post-production Jason Dole, this show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved. Trying to make it real compared to what...